Good morning. Who knows what today is? Really? I thought it was just what's his name birthday. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. And all around the world this week, churches and groups are practicing their passion plays and their programs, and uh, all of Christendom, at least, is going to look towards a person and towards a work. And next Sunday, toward a resurrection. And we pray that this world that is known as Christendom is going to invite their friends in, is going to talk to, it, talk to them about it, is going, and many of them are going to search their own hearts and see if they really do have a risen Savior of their own if they're, or if they're just following a practice that their friends and their families follow, that it might be, might be real to them. My message has nothing to do with Palm Sunday or really with, with what we call the Passion Week. <clears throat> the Lord's laid on my heart something else. But as this is Palm Sunday, and we think of the triumphal entrance of the Lord Jesus. You know, the Lord Jesus had ministered for three years throughout Israel from Galilee, across Jordan, into Samaria, the land of the Jews' enemies. And for three years, he, he put himself on display to the people that they might scrutinize him, that they might study him, that they might look upon him. And they had every opportunity to find fault in him. And for three years... Just as that Passover lamb, we were command, they were commanded to take that lamb. And for three days, they were to study that lamb. They were to inspect it from every angle. They were to open its mouth, look in its ears, check it below, behind, in front. And if there was any spot, it was unworthy to be offered. And so for three years, the Lord Jesus made himself available to be inspected. And I like to teach the children on a Thursday that in those years, they culminated with the people crying, crucify him. For what? What was he guilty of? I read in the Lord, I, I read in God's word that he healed the sick. That he cleansed lepers, that he cast out demons that he fed the multitudes, that he raised the dead. And yet after three years of this, the people cried away with him. This morning, Scott began to read the verses of this song. He told me he couldn't finish because there were tears in his eyes and there were tears in my eyes. He read, my song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. And that's what the Lord did in those three years of ministry. He showed love to the unlovely, to the lowest 
of the people. He showed love to the Pharisees, but they, did, they rejected it. But he showed his love to those lepers, demon-possessed, the poor, the needy. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? He came from his blessed home, salvation to bestow. But men made strange, and none the longed for Christ would know. But oh, my friend, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. Sometimes they strew his way, and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day hosannas to the king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. They rise and needs will have my dear Lord made away. A murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. Yet cheerful he to suffering goes, that he his foes from thence might free. Here might I stay and sing no story so divine. Never was love, dear king, never was grief like thine. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. This was written by a brother back in the 1600s. The 1600s, there was a brother there that knew the love of his Lord. He knew how special it was that the Lord had revealed himself to him in such a way that he had been redeemed. And in response his life was so filled with praise and worship that he could pen these words that bring us to tears this morning. They strew his way with hosannas, and yet their cry turns to crucify him. And this morning we think of that on Palm Sunday. But that's not my message. We also look back here today and we have, we have water back here. Today a young brother is going to be baptized. He's going to publicly, before all of you, before family and friends, loved ones, brothers and sisters, he's going to take that step of obedience. Is it required for salvation? Absolutely not. Ask the thief on the cross when you get to heaven. You, you're up here without baptism. How'd you get here? My, my Savior died for me. But the Lord asks us to follow him in baptism as an act of obedience. And you know something? If you're not baptized, if you haven't been publicly baptized, when, once you get to heaven, you'll have lost your chance. You can't get baptized in heaven. You can't obey the Lord in baptism in heaven, but you can here. And not necessarily here, but maybe in a pool. How many of you were baptized in something other than a baptismal pit? How many of you were baptized in a pool or a lake or a stream? Oh, the Lord Jesus delights in that. There are people who have been baptized out here in the ocean, Huntington Beach. But that's a public display, isn't it? They're not confessing just to their friends and their family that they're, I am the Lord's, they're saying. They're saying it to strangers on the beach as well. I am the Lord's. I bear his name. I obey him. And I follow him in baptism. 
And so today we're going to have a baptism. And a young brother is going to, through the waters of baptism, going to confess that he is buried, he is, he is uh, crucified and buried and risen again with his Savior, the Lord Jesus. So he declares to each of us today that he is the Lord's. He also declares to the powers above, the angels in heaven, that he is the Lord's. And he'll also declare to Satan and his angels, to the demons, that he is the Lord's. He's not a child of theirs. He is the Lord's. But my message is not on baptism either. The Lord's laid something on my heart. And I'd I'd like to uh, turn our minds to where many of us were just an hour ago. Just an hour ago, we were here. We were gathered at the Lord's table. And here before us was a loaf of, uh, I believe it was uh, rich, rich's bread, or what do they call it, rich farms? What was that bread? That's good bread. I know, it's, I know, it's one of those, those loaves that you, you have to bake yourself. That is good bread. But it's, there's nothing magical about that bread, right? And here was some cheap, guasty wine right here. It was, it was the cheap. And we, you get it in the, in the gallon jugs for like $7. It's cheap wine. And it's some, but it's good bread. But don't be confused that there's anything magical on this table, nothing mystical on this table. Over in Africa, they don't have wheat flour, so they make a bread out of whatever root fiber they have there. In the South Pacific, they make some kind of a cooked paste out of taro. But it's the staff of life, it's that starch that humanity has existed on forever. I would imagine that in Asia, they they might have to make a rice bread. There's nothing magical and mystical about it, is it? There's a loaf and there's wine. Yet, we sing that song, only bread and only wine, yet to us the solemn sign of the holy and divine, we give thee thanks, O Lord. You know, we, we had the uh, opportunity a few weeks ago to visit uh, a congregation in Corona, and Sam and Cindy went as well, and uh, it was very interesting, uh, and I do not doubt for a moment that they are godly, believing uh, Christians, but they made an announcement that they break, they break bread twice a year, uh, and that uh, that is really all that's required of them. And that's an example of a, of a group that has looked at something. I'm kind of getting ahead of the cart here, but, you know, there are, if you're, if you're from the Catholic or Anglican background, you know what's, you've, you've been raised to know what are called the, the rites of the church. And the rites of the church begin with infant baptism, and they go through, you know, you study at catechism and then you receive your first communion. And then you're going to have, uh, or you're going to have confirmation first and then your first communion. Uh, marriage in the church is one of the rites. I know I'm missing something. And of course, last rites, you've got to have your last rites. You're a, you're a Catholic. What else? What am I missing? Holy orders. Holy orders? What is that? 
Okay. Did you do that? And you're still saved? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Marriage and last rites. So there's quite a few rites there. When I read my Bible, I only see one of those that is commanded from the mouth of my Lord. Baptism is taught throughout the entire New Testament. Uh, First communion, confession, confession to right, last rites. I don't find any of these things in here. The Lord Jesus asked us on the very night that he was betrayed to do one thing. He didn't ask us to, well, through example, he's asked us to do many things. But there's very few things that he's commanded us. One is to love one another. One is to follow him. And one is to remember him. So few things that he's asked of us. There's so many things that he may expect of us. There's so many things that we should, out of a heart of gratitude and appreciation, knowing about this friend of mine, this friend indeed, who at my, for my life, did come and die. But there's only one thing he asked of his disciples. And it was on the night, the very night that he was betrayed. It was just hours before he was led to Calvary, before he bore his cross upon his back, just hours before. And he called his disciples, those that he loved, around him. And in Luke we read that he tells his disciples, with desire, I have desired to eat this with you before I suffer. With desire, I have desired, with great desire is how it's translated. For I say unto you, I will not eat any, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In Luke 22, verse 16, it says, And he took the cup, and he gave thanks. And he take this, and he divided it among them. He said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. And here's what he asked him. He says, This do. It's right here on the front of the table, isn't it? This do in remembrance of me. Right there on the front of the table, it's Luke 22. Verse 19, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. The most familiar passage of course about the Lord's table is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul declares that which the Lord has given unto him. Paul wasn't present that evening, was he? John was present, Luke was present, Mark was present. Matthew was present, but, Luke, but Paul was not present. So the Lord, who appeared to, to Paul as if it were out of due season, the Lord appeared to Paul and gave him revelation and understanding that went beyond anything that any of us have ever received. 
And Paul is able to amplify on those things. He didn't make things up. He didn't add things extemporaneously. But he gave more detail than the others. When, when in verse 24, he says, This do in remembrance of me. Verse 25 says, And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, what do you do? You do show forth the Lord's death till he come. Show forth, you outshow it, you display it, you proclaim it, the Lord's death till he come. Is there any topic that is grander to the ears of the Father than the remembrance of his son's sacrifice? Oh, I'm sure there are topics that are beautiful in the ears and in the nostrils of the Lord. But is there any that is more dear than seeing his redeemed remember him in his death till he comes? You know, there's very little teaching in the New Testament about the Lord's table. Other than 1 Corinthians and the Gospels, there's only three other references to it. There's a reference of Paul when he was visiting Troas. He stayed a full week so that he could break bread with the local assembly there. And so we get teaching on this, a couple of things we get on this, and that is that it, it appears that they broke bread on the first day of the week and in a weekly manner. They did it every week on the first day of the week. We glean that from it. We also glean something else from it, and that is that Paul had the opportunity to get back on board the ship with those that were traveling with him, and he could have broken bread on the ship. And some of us, we take advantage of this. I know when we go camping in, in the spring, we do our fishing trip, we will break bread. A group of eight or ten of us will, will break bread on a Sunday. But it would appear that the place that the Lord desires to be remembered is in the local assembly. With the body, the local body. Is there anything magical about this group right here? If half of us are missing, are, are we... Are we half a whole? If one of us is missing, are we? The Lord desires that we gather. Not to each other, but we gather to a common center. And that's the Lord Jesus. And whether we gather on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning, whether we gather at a children's group or a prayer meeting, we're gathering to the person of the Lord Jesus. Unlike some of the big congregations, the big churches, we don't have a format that comes down from headquarters, do we? <clears throat> headquarters says that every church of our denomination is going to worship this way in this pattern and with this timeline, with this schedule. It will be presided over by this pastor, this associate pastor, and this music team. We don't, I'm sorry, but maybe we should. No, we shouldn't. Maybe, where do we look to get our instructions? Brothers and sisters, the only other teaching in the Bible is that uh, we read that they, when they came to the Lord's table, they each had a word of prophecy, of teaching, etc. So it was uh, the point there being that there was not a one-man ministry, but that each believer brought to the Lord's table an offering to the Lord. Other than that, there's no clear outline, is there? 
what many of us, I mean, growing up, even into my adult years, I just assumed it's always been done this way. If the assemblies do it this way, it's going to be done this way, and it will always be done this way, and we are the right way because my parents do it this way. And of course, you know, I'm sure Scott feels the same way. You know, no. <laughs> if Dad believes it, it must be right. <laughs> but how that, what do we look for then as our pattern? Yes, this is how my parents did it when they were in the gospel hall and their parents did it when they were in the gospel hall and their grandparents did it. I don't know how many generations back we go in the assemblies, but it's been generations. And they've always done it this way. What is the reasoning? Where do we find our example? I've been to churches where the breaking of the bread is the last five minutes of a preaching service. You get 30 minutes of music, you get a 20-minute message, and then the pastor gives thanks for the bread, and they pass the bread. They give thanks for the cup, they pass the cup. But it's like any other ministry meeting with a little addendum to it. And then we know of the traditional churches that have made this a formalized ritual. Very formalized, very sacred, very, very empty. And presided over by one priest. And everyone will get a wafer, but only the priest gets the cup. Because he's a different class, isn't he? And there are those that have legalized it, and there's those that have corrupted it, and then others that have ignored it. When I hear that a, there's, a, there's a local church that does it twice a year, I think to myself, you pretty much ignored it. And the Lord hasn't asked a lot of us, has he? The Lord hasn't asked us to remember me and then go out and give your life. He says, don't remember me and then sell your house and give everything you have to the poor. He just asks us to remember him. So what, where do we look to find, to find examples of how we should remember the Lord? We're, we're no longer under the law, are we? So we don't necessarily have to look at the law, although the law points us to God, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I did, a, I did a series of teachings to the children <clears throat> from the Old Testament that included the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the veil, the camp, and how everything, everything screamed out, Jesus Christ, every bit of it. But when we search the New Testament to see patterns there, we see we have some examples but they dovetail with the Old Testament, so we cannot neglect the Old Testament as well. One thing I like to look at when I think of coming before the Lord is that uh, the Lord's table, you know, this is a piece of oak that was built in a shop in Corona by high school kids, I would assume, right? Norco. Norco. North Corona, excuse me, North, North Corona, by high school kids. Is that the Lord's table? If I move that one over there and put this, oh, that other one right here, would that be the Lord's table? The Lord's table is not a piece of wood, is it? 
The Lord's table is that place where the Lord has set himself. In Malachi, there's a beautiful verse in Malachi when Malachi is speaking to the, to the, uh, to the disobedient Israelites. It's in the first chapter, a very, uh, very well-known passage. Malachi 1.7 says, Ye offer polluted bread upon my altar. And ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And he goes on to tell them that you're offering polluted bread to the Lord. You're offering the lame and the sick for sacrifice. But he says, The table of the Lord is contemptible. What is the table of the Lord? You know that the altar is referred to as the table of the Lord. When the priest came before the altar, he came before the table of the Lord. When the priest lit the incense, he was lighting the incense before the table of the Lord. It wasn't just the table of showbread, but it was the altar. Ye have made contemptible the table of the Lord. And then this the nice thing is that this finishes saying that in verse 11, it says, From the rising of the sun, even until the going down of the same, my name shall be praised. My name shall be great among the Gentiles. You have polluted my table. You have forsaken me. You have made my table a contemptible thing. But my name will be praised. My name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place... Incense shall be offered unto my name. No longer in the temple, but in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. This is a prophecy to the people of Israel, to the children of Israel, to the nation of Israel. But it's also a prophecy, I think most of us are Gentiles. This is a prophecy to you and I, brothers and sisters, that the Lord said he will make his name great among the heathen, which we were. His name will be made great among the Gentiles, and incense will be offered to him everywhere. No longer just from the site of the temple. But the Lord's table will be put, and incense will be offered everywhere. Are there pictures of, uh, of this, <clears throat> of being invited to the table in the scripture? You know, one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible is the story uh, of David. When David had defeated his enemies, when he had brought judgment upon his enemies even within the nation of Israel, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 8 how he went and judged the nations of Syria and he defeated, and, he, and the list goes on of all the kings he defeated, but he also had to do a purge within as well. And Ishbosheth had to be judged. But when he had made an end to the judgment, when judgment was complete, he then asked his servants. He put the sword down. 
and his mind went to his friend Solomon. I'm, I'm sorry, to Jonathan. And he asked his servants, are there any left of the house of Saul that I might show kindness to? Judgment was complete. Now he wanted to show kindness. Are there any left? And they inquired. And Ziba came. And says, yeah, there is one. Jonathan's son. Not just anyone from the house of Saul. The son of Solomon. Or of Jonathan. There's yet one. He lives in Lodabar. That would be like saying he lives in Zizix or Barstow. He lives, he lives in the boonies. He lives in the land of no pasture. It can also be translated, he, li- he lives in the land of no communication, of no contact. He lives in the boonies. And when David had found this out, he immediately sent and fetched him. He didn't send Ziba back and say, Ziba, I command you to bring him to me. He sent his men. Then they got, they went, and they got Mephibosheth. And they carried him back to the presence of David. And they brought him before David. And I think that when David laid eyes on him, he saw something of his friend in him. Maybe he saw Solomon's eyes. Maybe it was his brow. Maybe it was his nose and mouth. But there was something I think he saw there of his dear friend, Jonathan. And they bring him in, and he's lame on both his feet. It would be as if he were paralyzed from the waist down. He was lame on both his feet. And they brought him before David. And Mephibosheth, it says, fell down on his face before David. And David told him, Arise. For your, for your father's sake, my dear friend. And we read the story of, of David's lament of Jonathan when he heard that Saul and Jonathan had been slain. And he weeps and he sings that song, Oh, how the mighty of Israel are fallen. And he confesses that his love for Jonathan was greater than the love of a man for a woman. There was a bond between them. They were like, they were, they were soul, they were, they were brothers from the soul to the mind. They desired God's will in their lives. They desired to serve the Lord. And though Jonathan was flawed in that he was the son of a disinherited king, he loved David. And he made David swear that David would not slay him And yet he wanted it to go beyond that of my seed. I swear to me that you will protect my seed. And David swore. And then Jonathan was slain. And he wept for Jonathan. Now the judgment's been done. The enemies have been slain. The usurper's been slain. Judgment has been done. He seeks to show grace 
to the house of Saul. And there Mephibosheth comes, lame on both his feet. He doesn't say it in the scripture, but I wonder. Did David come up off his throne? And did he help Mephibosheth? Did he pick him up? And did he he carry him to the table? And he says, from now on, you're going to eat at my table. Brothers and sisters, we've been invited to the Lord's table. Lame on both our feet. We're lepers. We're impure. And yet the Lord has invited us. Not only has he invited us, he has carried us. Were we capable of coming before him? Absolutely not. There's a beautiful popular song that I've only heard a few times. The first time I heard it, I was uh, struck with it because I am not a big fan of contemporary Christian music, as some of you know. Not a big fan at all. Uh, but I heard it. And it's a story that, uh, that, it's a song that comes from the story of Mephibosheth. How many of you heard that song, Carried to the Table by Leland? Only a couple of you. You're going to hear it at the end today. It says, Wounded and Forsaken. I was shattered by the fall, broken and forgotten, feeling lost and all alone, summoned by the king into the master's courts, lifted by the savior and cradled in his arms. I was carried to the table, seated where I don't belong, carried to the table, swept away by his love. And I don't see my brokenness anymore when I'm seated at the table of the Lord. I'm carried to the table, the table of the Lord. And at the end, we're, we're going to hear that song. And you tell me if you like it as well as I do. Because it's reverent. And it speaks of the Lord that carries us when, we, when we're incapable of coming on our own. <clears throat> When we look at the old table, we think of the altar. The Lord Jesus referred to the altar as his table. uh, Before the veil, before the presence of God, was an altar before the veil. Inside the veil was the ark. Before the veil was the the golden altar it was called, the altar of burnt incense. And on that incense, on all that altar, before the Lord, every morning and every night, after the morning sacrifice and after the evening sacrifice, the burnt offer, uh, the incense was burned there. Incense that was commanded by God to be made in a certain way. Incense that had to be lit with the fire from the brazen altar out in the courtyard. So twice a day, the priest would go out to the brazen altar and he would bring in in his silver pan coals from the altar of sacrifice. And he would bring it. And with those coals, the coals of judgment, 
he would light the incense that burned before the Lord. We know the story of the strange fire and how they were struck dead because they didn't use the fire from the altar. God commands that judgment be made, and from the judgment comes the blessing. And there before the nostrils of the Lord ascended daily that sweet incense. It was made of three compounds that are not known to us, and the fourth was frankincense. We know that that incense, as it burned, and as that smoke ascended, that it filled the holy place with its scent. Even though that, that incense was to ascend to heaven, to God, then the priests benefited by it. Can you imagine that when they left the holy place, the scent of that frankincense and those other esters was in their garments, it was in their hair. And when they left the presence of the Lord, they carried that out with them. But that incense ascended. They burned the incense before the Lord. In the New Testament, the we, there are three or four references that say that the incense is the prayers of the saints. So brothers and sisters, we come here on a Sunday morning with one intention, that is as a body to come before the altar, the table of the Lord, not the wood, not a, not a drink and not a, not a loaf of bread. We come before the person of the Lord Jesus to his altar. And here before him is the altar of, of incense that you and I, we add our incense to. And we add it and we add it. And that aroma goes up to the Lord Jesus and yet it comes upon us. And we enjoy it. We partake in it. We share in it. How can we help but absorb that? When I hear a young brother get to his feet in tears and read the lines of a hymn, when I hear a brother get to his feet and praise his Lord, and for every brother that gets to his feet, I know that there are many women whose incense is ascending much richer than those that are coming from the men. I know it. So we have that example from the Old Testament. We have the example of being brought to the table. We have the knowledge that the table of the Lord speaks to us also of his body and his blood. Another place we can look in scripture to see the reality of what we're doing on a Sunday morning is to turn to the book of Revelation. Because I believe that when we gather to the person of the Lord Jesus and do this in remembrance of him, that it is anticipatory, that it is a foretaste of what we're going to see in glory. When I was young, well, not that I'm not young, but when I was younger, I often, I, I often wondered how we are going to spend a billion years ahead. There must be some great assignments and some great travel, some great perks. There must be some great, great things planned for us. You read verses like, we, and we will, 
when the new Jerusalem comes out, we will rule and reign with him. We will mount up with things as eagles. We will run and not be weary. But I look in Revelation chapter 5 and again in chapter 8. And I see the occupation of those that are already there. In chapter 5, we read the story of John being taken, and I believe bodily, into the very throne room of heaven. And they're witnessing a scene that we will witness. Not, no other living human has seen it, but we will see it. And John relates it to us. And he says, and about the throne, he says, there was a throne in the midst, and about the throne, there were four beasts. And those four beasts, with their six wings, continually, day and night, said, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And then there were also four and twenty elders. Uh, and they fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever, ever, and, and cast, what? Their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And then we go on to read that the Lamb came out of the throne. In verse 8 it says, When he had taken the book, the four beasts and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps, and golden vials full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us kings, has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. I think that though that... That line which is, it has happened in eternity past, or I should say in the eternity present, the eternal present, that John was able to witness this. We will witness this as well. Can you imagine the sight of the Lamb coming out of the throne? When John was so despondent, the cry rang from heaven, who is worthy to take the book? And John said he wept much because there was no man in heaven found worthy. There was no one in heaven. And he was told, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He says, out of the throne came a lamb as it had been slain. And a lamb... Not very impressive, is it? The lamb was found worthy. Why? Because of his strength, because of his might, because of his power, because of the word of his power? It says here, he is worthy. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? Because you were slain. Because I was slain. Can we not, with the bread and the wine, can we not remember... 
the slain lamb of God. Oh, what a blessing. Brothers and sisters, were you in tears this morning? I wasn't. I was in tears this morning. There's a famous poem written by Christina Rizzotti that says, Am I a stone and not a sheep? That I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross, to number drop by drop thy blood slow loss, and yet not weep? Not so those women loved, who with exceeding grief lamented thee. Not so fallen Peter weeping bitterly. Not so the thief was moved. Not so the sun and moon, which hid their faces in a starless sky. A horror of great darkness at broad noon. I, only I. Yet give not o'er, but seek thy sheep, true shepherd of the flock. Greater than Moses, turn and look once more and smite a rock. Am I a stone and not a sheep? That I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross and yet not weep. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's a wonder that we can make it through a Sunday morning without the tears flowing down our face. But what a joy it is. What a joy it is. What can we see on TV or in the movies that moves us like unto the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anyone like him? Has anyone loved us like him, like this poem says? The women at the feet of the cross, they knew. Can you imagine how they remembered the Lord from week to week for the rest of their lives? Can you imagine how Peter must have remembered the Lord from week to week the rest of his life? How their hearts were broken each time they looked upon the loaf and the cup? Oh, brothers and sisters, we should learn to enjoy this time because we're going to spend eternity doing the same. Praising the lamb that was slain. We're going to gather around that throne. And around that throne for eternity, we will join that host that sings, Hallelujah, the Lord omnipotent reigneth forever and ever. We're going to sing glory and honor and praise to him that was slain. And there in heaven, no longer will we have the opportunity to be baptized. Praise God. This young brother will be baptized soon. And the Lord will smile as his son follows in obedience. But there in heaven, we won't be preaching the gospel, will we? That time has passed. We won't be ministering one to another, will we? That time has passed. We won't be doing children's work. That time has passed. There will be but one focus and one only. And that's the lamb. Oh, we've, we, we sang a closing hymn this morning that spoke so beautifully of what it is to experience the love of the Lamb and to sing his praises. We've got to close now because it's time for the baptism, but brothers and sisters, I just, I just want to uh, share with you the joy that I have experienced in remembering the Lord Jesus on a Sunday morning. 
Because I'll tell you, if it weren't for that hour, I don't know that I would be fellowshipping here. There are some fine churches down the street and up the road. But none of them do what we do on a Sunday morning. Brothers and sisters, don't miss it. Bring your incense. And we'll leave here smelling of that sweet savor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is none like unto thee. Father, who else has given thy son? Who else has given what you have given? Well, Father, it's, it's for his sake and in his behalf that you have reached out to us, lame in both our feet, and carried us to your table. It's, because, it's only because you see in us something that resembles him. Oh, Father, what a joy it is to bear his name and someday to bear his likeness as we seek to gather to thy table. There is no place like that. Oh, Father, the, the days are short, but that one hour, Father, how we've enjoyed it this very morning and how we look forward to next week as well. And we will do this till he come again. Oh, Father, and then we'll do it in his presence. Oh, what a Savior. We thank thee for him in his name. Amen.